0: Turn this morning, if you would, to uh, the book of Hebrews and chapter 2. Book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 2. We return there this morning, and I want to draw your attention especially to verse 14 and 15. Hebrews chapter 2. And verses 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives and let us pray father again we come into thy presence and and thank you for the, the privilege we've had of such precious worship to lift our, our hearts to thee. And, and Lord, I, these moments would ask for the, the help of your Holy Spirit as we look into this particular aspect of your revelation. I pray that you would uh, give me understanding. I, I pray you would help me to convey your Your word, your holy word, in a way that, that truly reflects your holy meaning behind it. And I, I do pray that you would work in the hearts of each one that is here this morning, that you would enlighten our hearts, open our hearts to behold marvelous things out of your law. And might it, might it not only be honoring to thee and pleasing to thee, might it be truly good for our own souls, helpful for our own thinking and the living of the Christian life for your glory. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last time we were in uh, Hebrews chapter 2, our focus was on on chapter 2 and verse 11. Uh, Just a a kind of a brief review. We we saw something of the glory of our relationship with Christ. Uh, Three areas. One, that he accomplished sanctification for his people in verse 11. And then also that he fully identifies with them. And I spent a little bit of time... Um, clarifying, at least by an understanding of the phrase, uh, all from one father, if you have a New American Standard Version of the Bible, the term father is in italics, which means that it was not in the original, it was a um, decision the translators made to uh, to put that in. Um, King James, New King James, have the translation all of one. And just to make a long explanation shorter, I'm persuaded it refers not to a someone like God or Adam or Abraham, but to something, particularly human nature. He identified with his people by taking on human nature. And then a third aspect of that relationship, uh, we noted that the condescension on the part of Christ in identifying with his people the text says for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren well then if you move into verses 12 and 13 uh, by means of three different quotes from the old testament uh, there's an emphasis on the solidarity that christ has with his people and that is brought out at least in some degree by the repetition of the term brethren that occurs at the end of verse 11 Uh, And beginning, verse 12, "...he is not ashamed to call them brethren." uh, Verse 11, then verse 12, "...saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren." And it's also seen in a reference to them as children in verse 13. Right at the end of the verse, uh, the children whom thou hast given me. And when you hear those those words, the children whom thou hast given me, your mind might go to John chapter 17. It's very much like the the words of our Lord. And it's high priestly prayer. This is the the night before he was crucified in verse 2 of John chapter 17. Even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given me he may give eternal life. And again, in that chapter, uh, verse 9. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me, for they are are mine. And also in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. In John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that that of all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Well then in verses 14 and 15, uh, this thought of our Lord's identity with... um, uh, the identity uh, with those whom the father had given him it receives greater prominence and, and development the identity with his people it's by means of his incarnation it's by means of his uh, taking on human flesh and that's that's followed by two clear reasons or purposes for the incarnation so verses 14 and 15 two reasons or two purposes why it is that jesus took on human Flesh, and, and I think this consideration will help us to understand why the eternal Son became man and also why it is that he had to die on the cross and just the, the subject matter here will be a, i think a, a precious preparation for observing the lord's table as well so three main points or three main thoughts this morning in the first place i just want to um, underscore the fact of his incarnation the fact of his incarnation the beginning of verse 14 since then the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise also partook of the same now by incarnation just a bit more of a of an expansive definition it's the art of assuming flesh or taking a human body and the nature of a man. So it has regard to um, our Lord becoming a real, actual human being. Um, there was a point in time when the eternally existent Son of God became man. In verse 11, this reality is briefly referred to, I believe, by the words, all of one, um, is having the same human nature as his people. And and here the point is made a bit more expansively. Since the children share in flesh and blood, since that is the case... Since that is their condition, the Lord partook of the same nature. It it corresponds to the teaching of John chapter 1, where we read about the, the word that was God and the word that was with God. At a particular point in time, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Same kind of thought here. So three brief observations under this first heading. First of all, the language especially has reference to those whom the Father has given to the Son. We made some reference to that. Verse 14 surely has the same children in mind as verse 13. um, and, And the children that God has given me. So he partook of the same nature as those whom the Father had given him before the foundation of the world. And then secondly... The text underscores the full participation of our Lord in the human condition. The full participation of our Lord in the human condition. The term share here is the the Greek word koinonia, which you may have heard of before. It's the idea of to share, to have a share, to do in common with. As William Lane puts it, the the assertion grounds the bond of unity between Christ and his people in the reality of the incarnation. That that, that is, Jesus becoming man is the point of unity between him and and the people he came to save in the incarnation the transcendent son accepted the mode of existence common to all humanity the meaning of the two roots share and partake is, is virtually synonymous both describe full participation in a shared reality and then the little adverb likewise means in just the same way as one commentator put it signifies total likeness. It underscores the the extent of the identity of the son's involvement in the conditions of human experience common to other persons. Well, then, a a third brief observation under this first heading, the the combination of these two phrases together, uh, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook, partook of the same combination of those two together, brings out that Christ assumed human nature at a particular point in time. Uh, the meaning of the two words share and partake are they mean the same thing they're synonymous in meaning but the verb tenses are different and one commentator brought this out I thought it was helpful it makes a point that the term share marks the original and natural state of humanity and then this word partake emphasizes that the son assumed human nature at a fixed point in time by his own choice we already made reference to that in John chapter 1 so in the first place just simply underscoring the fact or the reality of our Lord's incarnation he fully participated in the human condition that's the first point now secondly I want to bring out the first purpose of his incarnation the first reason or purpose for his incarnation why did he become human why did he fully participate in human nature the human condition here's I I think the, the, the clear shorter answer it was so he could die on the cross That he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. That is the devil. So that's kind of the, the short answer. As one put it, the purpose for which the transcendent Son of God entered human nature is indicated by the expanded purpose clause that he might destroy. A little a little further, he took on this dying humanity in order that through his own death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And you might think of First John 3, 8, where it says that he might destroy the works of the devil. <clears throat> William Lane wrote, he assumed a, a mortal human nature in order that he might nullify the power of an evil tyrant who possessed the power of death. And then he might rescue those who had been enslaved. That's a reference to verse 15. The identification of the tyrant as the devil exposes the depth of the human plight. The devil did not possess control over death inherently, but gained his power when he seduced humankind to rebel against God. One speaks of the representation of death as the henchman in the devil's service and the threat of death as an instrument which he bludgeons humanity into submission. God created man... William Lane writes, God created man for incorruption and made him in the image of his own eternity. But through the devil's envy, death entered the world and those who belong to his party experience it. It is ironical, he writes, that human beings destined to rule over the creation, that would be Psalm 8, should find themselves in the posture of a slave paralyzed through the fear of death. Hopeless subjection to death characterizes earthly existence apart from the intervention of God. Uh, The the word translated rendered powerless, um, or it's destroy in the King James Version, it can mean to make ineffective or abolish or wipe out. So it's the idea of to inactivate, to cause something to become idle, inactivate, um, inoperative, or useless. Now we can develop our thinking here by, by means of two questions. Question number one, in what sense does the devil have power over death? Question number one. In what sense does the devil have power over death? Well, first we can say not absolutely and not ultimately. That prerogative belongs only to the being of God. Excuse me. In Deuteronomy 32, thirty nine, see now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me, it is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, it is I who heal. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. First Samuel two six The Lord kills and makes alive, he brings down to Sheol and raises up. And Psalm hundred thirty nine sixteen Thine eyes have seen mine unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written The days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Satan is a created being. God is not. God is all-powerful. Satan is not. God is sovereign. Satan is not. Now, secondly, his power over death, and I think fundamentally this is the point, it resides in the fact that he brought about the fall of our first parents. He seduced them to disobey God, resulting in the fall of mankind and the penalty of sin. Now, just to refresh your mind, From Genesis chapter 2, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Genesis chapter 3, The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. He's a liar, the father of liars. They ate of the tree, and you know what happened. Uh, We can add to this that Jesus talking to some Jews in John chapter 8. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. And in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 12, it says, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. So although Cain was responsible for the murder of his brother, he's presented here as belonging to the evil one. And the influence of the evil one was not forgiveness or not love, but rather he slew or he murdered his brother. So, excuse me, his power over death involves this initial seducing of our first parents But also, um, his seduction of Adam and Eve, because of that, death passes on the entirety of posterity. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. And one writes, his power over death is seen in his perpetual activity as a destroyer. His perpetual activity as a destroyer. His ongoing influence as God of this world, 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Robert Martin adds another In that, as an accuser, he challenges God to execute upon all the guilty the death sentence the law demands. Revelation 12:10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1: Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing. Before the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Question number two How does Jesus' death render the devil powerless with reference to the Christian? And the answer to that is by his death on the cross, he paid the penalty that our sir that our sins merited and deserved. His death was a full satisfaction. For the wrath of God against sin. That's brought out down in verse 17 where he's a propitiation for our sins. He fully satisfies the wrath or the justice of God against sin. So relatedly, his death on the cross, it, it releases us from the liability of punishment that we know that our sins deserve. So his accusations no longer have power, they no longer have strength not because we're not sinners, we know that, that we are, but because the penalty for them has been fully paid, fully satisfied on on the cross as one author put it by his death on the cross jesus took his own body in his own body the penalty due to his people's sins by the sacrifice of himself he made propitiation for our sins and by his actions he released those from whom he represented from liability to the second death the eternal punishment of the guilty in hell as the punishment for their sins And by releasing us from liability to the second death, he changes also the character of our physical deaths. So that as the Heidelberg Catechism says, our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only a dying to sins and entering into eternal life. By his death, Jesus therefore stripped the devil of his power of accusation so that he cannot prevail against the brethren of Christ. So... In the second place, a first purpose of the incarnation and subsequent death on the cross, it was to destroy or to nullify the devil who had the power over death. Secondly, excuse me, thirdly, and the second purpose of the incarnation was liberation. Uh, kind of a key word first is destruction, now a key word would be liberation or deliverance. It was to deliver those who, through the fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives One writes, the primary goal of the incarnation, it was the participation of Christ in in death, but then further, the second purpose of the incarnation and suffering and death was to free his people from bondage to the fear of death. So it's not just death, but it's the the bondage that the fear of death leads to. Uh, The the sense of the term free here is to grant freedom, to free from confinement or some uh, service, and and to fear... um, can be understood as an emotional experience in anticipation of some uh, some pain or danger. And often it's accompanied, accompanied by a desire to flee or, or to fight. So to me, um, this is as much of the glory of the gospel of Christ right here. I'll give you two reasons why I think right here, at least to my own heart, this is, this is much of the glory of the gospel. It's for two reasons together. Number one, because all unsaved people, all unsaved people, are subject to the fear of death that leads to a condition of slavery all their lives. That's the condition of the unsaved. That's the condition of all unsaved people. The the thought inherit and be subject to it is to be under the power or sovereign sovereignty of another or others. It's presented as being not not an occasional or sporadic thing, but this is the ongoing settled condition of all people, all unsaved people. I, I think it's true, especially for two reasons. Others may come to your mind there is a sphere of death number one i believe because everybody knows it's an eventuality that cannot and will not be avoided everybody understands you you can't avoid this now in this world one might be aware of another's experience maybe terrible economic hardship and you think i hope that doesn't happen to me and it may not In this world one may know of another uh, who's undergoing some uh, some kind of horrendous pain and thinks i hope that never happens to me and it may not Occasionally we have to attend a memorial service for one that we love or care about and um, upon any reflection we know or one knows that will happen to me as well. That There's no way that I can escape the appointment I have with the grim messenger or the dark messenger of death. So the, this fear of death, it's the ongoing condition of the unsaved because they know the reality is certain. No matter what they do, ultimately, they know they can't escape this. <clears throat> and also, I think, because its occurrence normally is uncertain. We know that it will happen, but we also know it could happen at any time. So both these things, I, I think, contribute to this idea of the fear of death that leads to bondage all the days of the unsaved in this life. F. F. Bruce wrote, The Fear of death is the most potent fear through fear of death many men will consent to do things that nothing else would compel them to do some braver souls it is true will accept death sooner than dishonor but for the majority the fear of death can be a tyrannous instrument of coercion and death is indeed the king of terrors to those who recognize the penalty of sin a little longer quote here the fear of The fear of which the writer speaks is connected with conviction of sin, a persuasion of God's displeasure, and an expectation of judgment beyond the grave. Man outside of Christ is enslaved by this fear. Unjustified sinners are haunted by the dread of their certain approaching death. All men, by virtue of the testimony of their consciences, know it is appointed unto men once to die and then judgment. God endowed consciences with with his knowledge and he wrote the moral law on the heart. This knowledge produces a fear that binds men all their days. So this is the tragedy of the unsaved human condition. So we can say this. The fear of death that is prominent among the unsaved, that that is warranted. It's warranted because God has written his law in their heart. And they know that it's appointed for once for man to die and then the judgment. But secondly, the the gospel to me is glorious because it's the only means of being delivered from this power. It's the only Means of being delivered from the reality of the fear of death. And you ask, well, how does it do it? You're probably there already. How does the gospel deliver us from the fear of death? by the perfection of the atoning death of christ on the cross one of the ways that the gospel delivers us from the fear of death it's what christ accomplished in our behalf it's the perfection of his sacrifice on the cross it was a glorious clear weighty once for all sacrifice for sins that fully satisfied all the demands of god and, and through faith in Christ, everything that, that he accomplished on the cross immediately applies to us. And, and the resurrection of Christ is a validation that God the Father accepted everything that his son accomplished on the cross. So the, the gospel delivers from the fear of death closely relatedly because we are united by faith with the one who is victorious over it. We are united by faith with the one who is victorious over Death. Only, F.F. Bruce writes, by becoming man could the Son of God conquer death, which man without him could never have done until his conquest of death. Death seemed to have the last word. The resurrection faith was cherished before he came, but his resurrection, resurrection brought life and immortality to light, and that faith a firmer basis. If death had had the last word with him too, how would anyone have supposed that through death he had disabled the prince of death? So his victory over death assures our souls that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in the person of Christ. You might think of these words from Romans chapter 8. Paul says, who shall separate us? From the love of Christ. Then he goes on, Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine? For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And just a further thought here. Um, To to Christians, uh, death means not judgment but blessing, not bondage but liberation. Their own death, when it comes, takes its character, takes the character of his death. If then, death itself cannot separate the people of Christ from God's love, which has been revealed in him. It can no longer be held over their heads by the devil or any other malign power as a means of intimidation. So our death takes its character from the death of the person of Christ. So to be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Gospel language is today that you shall be with me in paradise. So I would just say to you that the unsafe condition, it's a tragic condition. Um, it, it takes its cue from the God of this world, from the realm of Satan. The, the realm of Satan is a realm of death. As one author put it, a hopeless subjection. To death characterizes earthly existence apart from the intervention of God. And in the glory of the saved condition, it's not a realm of death, it is a realm of life. Everything about the gospel exudes the reality of life. Second Timothy 1:10 now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In John 7:37, we read, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If any man is thirsty, I'll let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. In fact, I'll leave you with this. This is what it means to become a Christian. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead. It's entrance into life, eternal life, abundant life, glorious life that is all founded in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray, shall we? Father, we thank you this morning for the the glory and the power of the gospel. We thank you for your pure and precious and holy son and, and his obedience to your will and his very purposes for taking our place on the cross we thank you for this deliverance from the fear of death we thank you that you raised him from the dead we thank you when we come to him in faith we are raised up to new life in christ we thank you for the reality and the glory and the power of the resurrection and this deliverance from the fear that uh, that affects so many people apart from your pure and precious and holy son and we thank you in jesus name amen